Welcome this morning. Really uh, glad you're here. Good morning. Yes, I too was a youth builder. And apparently, because uh, my friends Mike and Melry were, we were on this team together 26 years ago. I was a youth builder. Back when youth were really youth. And... <laughs> And, uh, and uh, my friends, Mike and Mallory, went on to train the teams that actually go across the country now. And apparently, so during the training, they tell all these stories about us and our experiences together. Things I've forgotten, these guys are, are telling me. And uh, if you want to hear some inside stories of, of my life, go and talk to these guys after. You'd know. Um, it's, uh, it's great to be together. And uh, why don't we, just before we get into the message, uh, let's pause and pray give thanks. Lord, you're good. We loved hearing this morning how you're working in our high schoolers and our middle schoolers. We loved hearing how uh, you've been doing a fantastic work of transformation in Kenya, and uh, the good reports are so encouraging, God. And Lord, I'm thankful that uh, there's a current going on in this church, in our lives, of you being at work, uh, bringing change, and transformation, and hope, and uh, beauty from ashes, God. And uh, we know that uh, life is not always easy, and it can be very hard. And yet, as we sang this morning, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. And so we lift you up, and we turn our eyes towards you this morning. We pray you would be the source of our life and our hope, and you would speak to us this morning uh, in your grace and in your mercy, God. We would hear from you, and uh, we'd be bold enough to pray that you'd change us. Make us more of who you want us to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and there are loner Bibles at the back. Um, this is church. We look at the Bible pretty much every week. We do, actually. So bring a Bible or grab a Bible to borrow. Uh, Matthew 26. We're in an eight-week series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And again, the idea we've been talking about is that emotional health and contemplative spirituality can unlock a fantastic transformation in our lives and get us in on this whole new journey with God that takes us beneath the surface of our icebergs. A couple of weeks ago, we ended up skipping a week in the series. We missed going back in order to go forward, uh, talking about the impacts that our families can have on us. Uh, if you have a book, you can read that chapter. I, I, I like how someone put it. Remember, as, as, as everyone knows, as far as anyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. Uh, well, we're not going to go back uh, today, but we're going to go forward. I did speak a message in June called Getting Past Our Past, and so if you feel like you want to address that topic more fully than the book does, you can actually uh, listen online to that message. This morning we're going to be talking about enlarging our souls through grief and loss. And while it's a, a challenging topic, I've found that as I've pondered this material that it's, I've, I've met God in it. And, and I believe God wants to meet with us this morning in a significant way, and it can be really good. And the key word here is enlarge, and I want you to focus on that. The reason this, this is so important is because from the moment you and I are born, we are, are going through loss. You, you won't remember this, but when you came out of your mother's womb, that was a huge loss. You know, leaving the warmth and the, the coziness, I mean, it was, it was a, a place built for you, you know? And, and to, to be thrust out into the bright open air was quite a shock, and loss starts happening right there. 
and we continue to lose things. Some, some of us lose our eyesight. Some of us lose our girlish figures. Uh, some of us uh, lose our hair. Not mentioning anyone's name. In fact, I'm, I was really distraught this week. I'm actually getting a new bald spot right back here. It's just like going, wow, that doesn't even come there anymore. Very sad. Um, shave it anyway. <laughs> Stop it. One day we lose it all. One day we'll be like Job. We'll, we'll have lost all of our relationships. We'll have lost all of our, our health. We'll have lost all of our possessions. We'll have lost all of our achievements. I mean, and, and we'll leave this world and meet God how? Naked. Naked. Naked, uh, Job says, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. So all of life is this going through loss. And, and we kind of better get used to it, or we kind of better deal with it. In fact, since no one is exempt from this, if we want to be faithful followers of Jesus, this is not something we can neglect, but he wants us to, to address. And if we do, it will enlarge our hearts, and it will lead to, to wholeness and depth and an ability to be free in life. And, and through it, we can learn to let go of things that we need to let go of, and our souls can, can grow and be enlarged. It's a good thing. And here's the thing. We all come from different cultures and ethnic backgrounds and, and from individual families that have a different way of dealing with, with grief and loss. The, the challenge for all of us is to do this God's way, to do it biblically. And, and Scripture engages this topic a lot. I mean, think of it. Two-thirds of the Psalms are griefs or laments to God. We have a, a book, the, the book of Lamentations, that's all about this. Uh, there's Jeremiah, which is continually these laments poured out to God. Most of the book of Job is, is him struggling with his grief and his loss. And think about the, the profound words of Jesus. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. So it's a, a really big biblical theme. And today we're going to look at Jesus and how he dealt with, with grief and loss as a model of what it looks like to be fully human and, and to engage in it. So let's read the text this morning, and, and I encourage you to imagine yourself there, maybe like you're watching a video or, or, or a movie. Imagine yourself in the garden with Jesus, beginning in verse 36 of Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for, for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And he went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, praying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. 
Now, I want you to first picture this scene and highlight just a couple of words before we take it apart. Look at verse 37, where he says, he began to be sorrowful and, and troubled. The word sorrowful uh, basically means to be sad or to be depressed. And I know many people, I know many of you have, have struggled with this whole issue of depression. And, he, and here we have Jesus struggling with depression and, and sadness in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Gospel of Mark uses a, a different word that, that means horror came over him. And, and we're told he's troubled, he's severely distressed. Luke uses the word he's in anguish. And Jesus says this, this very openly to his disciples. He's being very public about this. In verse 38 he continues, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus offered his prayers to God with loud cries and tears. He's, as Isaiah says, a man of, of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And he's in such anguish, and he's so overwhelmed that in verse 39, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prays. And, and we know that, that our, our physical posture and position says a lot about what's going on inside of us spiritually, whether we're standing or or whether we have our arms raised or our arms crossed or whether we're on the ground. And Jesus is flat out, prostrate on the ground, crying out in prayer. He's broken and he's empty. He's got nothing to hold on to but God at this point. And Luke, he expands on this passage to say, and being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Doctors and theologians say his his capillaries were bursting. He, his loss and grief were so intense. He's laid out flat on the ground, and, and blood is coming out of him in his sweat. You, you ever been so overwhelmed that you've just been laid flat out? You've got nothing left. And the losses that Jesus is experiencing here are overwhelming. He's, he's experiencing or about to experience the, bearing the weight of God's judgment on sin. He's going to be cut off from the Father, who he loves so much. He's going to taste and, and experience hell. And, and as he considers becoming sin, he who knew no sin, Jesus is going to drink this cup, this judgment of God on sin. All sin, every sin ever committed in history. Genocide, you know, rape, incest, war, murder. Go down the list. He's drinking the whole cup and and not just for sin, but for the judgment that sin deserves. He's, he's looking at this cup in, in front of him, and he is overwhelmed, and he's sad, and he's anguished, and, and he cries out face to the ground because there'd be other losses that he knew were coming. I mean, think of Judas betraying him just minutes from now. I mean, this friend that he journeyed with and poured his life into for three years. And then, and then the, the 11 disciples, including his three that were his closest friends, when he was in his, his greatest moment of grief, what would they do? They'd run for the hills. Nobody was there with him in his hour of greatest need. You know, if I was uh, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, I think I would have just cut this out of the Bible. <laughs> I, I, I think I would have cleaned Jesus up a bit, made him a little bit more superhero-like, a little, a little more serene and, and peaceful. You've seen some of the pictures of Jesus in the garden, right? He's, he looks so good with his hands like this up to the heavens, and he's kind of smiling as he's wrestling in the guard. Yeah, right. If you've uh, you read uh, Fox's 
Book of Martyrs. It's an incredible book documenting some of the experiences of early Christian martyrs, people who gave their life for their faith. Like, like Polycarp, who was the, the bishop of Smyrna, who at age 89, he was burned at the stake because he would not renounce his faith in Jesus. And when they lit the fire, he is reputed to say, let it burn, why do you wait, come what you will. Like Polycarp was like, bring it on, I can take it. But here in this moment in this garden, we don't get that. We don't get Polycarp's brashness or boldness. Instead, Jesus is on the ground, and he hasn't lied. He hasn't, he hasn't sinned. Folks, this is a, a picture of Jesus fully God and, and fully human. And the early church really struggled with this passage because what's so heavy about this is is Jesus is looking for any possible way out of this situation. He's asking, can't there be another way? Can't there be your will be done in any other way? I don't want this cup. And Jesus says this again and again and again. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now what's important here to catch is if you think Jesus is always going to give us health and wealth and prosperity and and easygoing times, this passage shoots that idea down. It's not always possible to have the bad things edited out of our stories. I mean, Jesus, he doesn't get the miracle. And and, and Jesus, the the Son of God, asks, if it is possible, let's get rid of this. Let's let's achieve the salvation of the world some, some other way. And God basically says to Jesus, his beloved Son, no, you're going to drink the cup. And Jesus courageously says, okay, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And, and if you think a, a miracle is going to be getting your own way or a miracle is going to look a certain way, this passage shows you that may not be true. And Jesus is teaching us and, and modeling for us a whole new way of, of being human, of, of walking through our losses and, and having our souls not confined or destroyed or devastated, but being grown and enlarged. And this morning we're going to talk about two themes here. Peter Scazzaro talks about, one, he calls it listening to the interruption of grief as opposed to not listening. And then, and then secondly, learning to fall, something that goes very much against our, our natural inclinations. First, listening to the interruption. For Jesus, this was obviously an interruption. This, this interrupted his entire life. But that's the, the thing about losses. Every time they come into your life and into to my life, they interrupt our plans. A couple of a weeks ago, my life got seriously interrupted by an irregular heartbeat. My heart was doing a, a, the wonky dance or something like that. I don't know what was going on there. And it wouldn't stop. And that led to a a, what I thought was going to be a brief trip to the hospital. I was, in faith, bought four hours of parking. <laughs> Turns out I needed about 140 hours of parking or something like that. I was in the hospital for five days as they tried to sort me out. And I realized in that experience, what I didn't like about it is I don't like interruptions. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I've got plans. And I don't have plans for, for loss and grief <laughs> and suffering. That's not part of it. And so every time that comes in, we want to say, just get this out of here. Especially for the big losses. Many, our tendency is to ignore them or to throw them out. And, and losses 
they just come in, in so many shapes and sizes, and we could spend a long time this morning sharing, but everything the lo- from the loss of, of people that we love through death to divorce to separation to relationship breakups to illnesses to some form of betrayal or abuse. It, it could be unfulfilled dreams that we have in life, or it could be failures that, that we've uh, uh, had happen, or disappointments, or the bad choices of our children, or maybe it's the bad choices of our parents. I mean, it could be the, the painful memories we have, or decisions we've made, or, or perhaps people that, that we've hurt along the way, and, and we carry those losses. Losses come in so many forms, and we could just go on and on and on. And here's the thing. Our culture doesn't deal with loss very well. I would say we're a, a culture of grief avoidance. We actually kind of marginalize loss. It's, it's kind of, I would say, a lost art to grieve. And then sometimes our church culture doesn't do loss very well either. The attitude can be we don't feel or we don't talk or we stuff it or numb it or, or we medicate it. And I think that's why addictions can be so prevalent is things like, like shopping or eating or, or food or alcohol or porn, whatever it might be, part of this is simply grief avoidance. And I, I think we avoid it because when we go through loss, we lose what? Control. We lose control. And who wants to be out of control? And in those moments, there's a sense sometimes that even in our, our faith in God doesn't seem to work like it should in those times. This is some of what happened to us as a family when our oldest son, was, Caleb, was just four years old. He was playing in a, a family member's backyard when he tripped and fell in front of a, a gas lawnmower and got his feet caught underneath the, the, the mower. And the, the mower tore at his one foot, uh, and especially uh, cutting off his big toe. I've shared this before, but I'll... I'll never forget the phone call I received from Angel. She was in Ontario with the boys, and I was in in BC, and I I got this call, and all she could get out were the words, something terrible has happened before she broke down sobbing on the phone. And I I, I had no idea what had happened, and my my worst fears were that my sons were gone and they were dead, and and that's what she was calling to tell me. And it was actually a bit of a relief to hear it was only a toe. But, I mean, it was a, a traumatic event for our family, and especially for Angel and, and those who were there. Uh, we talk about it as a family, and our son Noah, who was two years old at the time, says that that event is his earliest memory. He remembers standing at the window, looking in the backyard through the glass as ambulance attendants tried to take care of Caleb and sort this trauma out. And we faced all these questions around this loss. Questions like, God, where were you? Why couldn't you have stopped that? What's going on, God? I thought thought we were your favorites. (laughs) Why would you let that happen? This was a a real wall for us. God, like, what are you up to? And we know uh, personally and we know historically that God reveals himself. He often does that. but, But isn't it also true that God can sometimes be very hidden? And we can't see what he's doing, and it, and it feels just like he's absent. He's checked out for a while or something. He's present, but you're kind of wondering where he is. You know, Nicholas uh, Wolterstorff was a, 
a professor at, at Yale, and he was a, a theologian, and he went something through, it's far worse than we went through. His 25-year-old son was killed in a rock-climbing accident. And later he wrote a book about it titled Lament for a Son. And as he was listening and struggling to the interruption of the loss of his son dying, this is what he wrote. He said, he said Eric, my son was bursting with plans, and now it's all gone. All the rich future he held, gone in those tumbling seconds. Nothing fills the void of his absence. He is not replaceable. We can't go out and get another just like him. There's a hole in the world now. In the place where he was, there's now nothing. Only a gap remains. Please don't say it's not as bad as it, as it really is, because it is. I can only endure with Job. Endure. I do not know why God didn't prevent Eric's death. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the resurrection of Jesus. I also believe my son's life was cut off in its prime. I can't fit these pieces together. I'm at a loss. To the most agonizing question I've ever asked, I do not know the answer. I don't know why God would watch him fall, and I don't know why God would watch me. And so losses come with these sharp questions to our faith. This is, frankly, folks, why, why we're promoting this seminar with Daryl Johnson in a couple weeks on, on a biblical perspective on suffering because we need to be thinking about this. this is one, these are one of the biggest questions and objections to our faith. Is God good? Why does he allow these things? Uh, Daryl, I think, is well-positioned to talk about this subject. He, too, lost his son. His son, just about five years ago, committed suicide, his adult son. So I, I, he's well-positioned to talk about suffering, and I commend that seminar to you. And not only can there be questions that sometimes when, when losses come, there can be a sense of shame in it. What often kicks in is a sense of shame or, or, or guilt and a feeling of, I somehow must deserve this. And, and then when that happens, if you're sad or you're feeling this guilt or shame or, or whatever, the last place you want to be is, is guilt, and, or is, you want to be as, at church. And so you, you go off in your sadness and depression, and you leave until you're happy again, and then you come back to church. And sometimes the message we, we kind of communicate at church is, don't come here if you're sad. Then what happens is, is we get people who come to church, and what do they do? They fake it. How you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing good. Praise God. Right? We end up pretending as if, as if we're not grieving and going through our losses. And, and the irony is, is Jesus is on the ground grieving. And it, it's tragic that we create communities where we don't grieve and where we end up pretending. And, you know, I used to think that good Christians or, or strong Christians, you know, don't ever get sad or confused or discouraged and, and, and good Christians definitely don't fall on their faces like this, especially leaders. And here's Jesus, the leader of all. I mean, he's God. And, and if anything can shake your theology up, it's, it's this, God in the flesh on the gra- ground, because God is entirely human. J- Jesus is entirely human, just like us. And he actually says to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. I feel like dying right now. And there's your cup. There's something in, in front of you right now or something you're in and you're saying, I can't take it. 
You know, I'm at, I'm at my limit. I'm going to die if this thing doesn't work out. And that's exactly where Jesus is. He's not like God who just wore his humanity like a cloak, like a, a spacesuit. He was fully human and fully God. That's why we have this permission from God himself to listen to our grief and to feel the interruptions that come into our lives. It's biblical to feel, and, and Jesus models this feeling to the depths for us. What's this listening going to look like? I want to just take a moment here this morning. Well, for Jesus, he expressed his grief. In the garden, we, he's pouring out his grief and his doubt of, and his loss to the Father. Now, when his friend Lazarus died, we're told that, that Jesus did what? Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And we know that he eventually resurrected his friend Lazarus, but there was a whole lot of waiting and weeping before that came about. We're told he wept over Jerusalem, this wayward city of God that he loved so much. He wept on the cross. He cried out at the top of his voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His greatest doubt, his greatest expression, right there on the cross. You know, I, I had a, a friend a, a couple of years ago who, who went through a string of losses uh, just, uh, you know, one after the other. I mean, he lost his, his health, and then he lost his job, and, and then, then that meant a loss of career, and, and, and he lost a family member, and all this kind of... He was like a country song. <laughs> you lose everything, even the dog, it seemed like. And the losses were just mounting up in his life, life and he confessed to me. He said, Darwin, I don't know how to grieve. Like, like how do we grieve? And uh, I remember saying something along the lines of, it's, you know what, grieving is not a difficult thing to do but it's a difficult thing to do. <laughs> it's, not the hardest, it's not a hard thing to do, but it's the hardest thing to do. It's called facing your loss. Like Jesus did in the garden. He, he wrestled with his loss. Grieving is simply, I, I think, processing it. Processing the losses. Naming them. Identifying it. And, and actually, the, the people of God through history have, have, a, have a way of doing this. I think of the Psalms and David. That why are two-thirds of them laments? because David was writing his pain. He was naming his losses. He was describing his, his concerns to God. He was being really open about it. And so we have this record of this. And I, I've been reading a, a, a book by, by Jerry Sitzer called A Grace Disguised. And it, it's about a catastrophic loss that he went through. His whole family, his, his wife, four children, his mother was visiting for the weekend. They were out in Idaho on a on an evening, driving in their van, when a car, an oncoming car, uh, driven by a drunk driver, swerved into their lane and hit them. In that moment, Jerry lost his wife and his mother and his four-year-old daughter. They were killed in that accident. And he went on to, to, to write this phenomenal book. And if you're grieving right now, if this is something, that, that's a book I'd highly commend to you as well. It's a powerful book. And Sitzer would, would eventually find God meeting him in, in some profound ways, even in the midst of it all. He talks about what God did through that entire experience, and out came this book that has been a help to very many people. Um, but he was asked in an interview, he was asked, was writing the book the most helpful thing? He says, no, not writing the book. He says, writing my journal. He says, for three years after that, that incident, I wrote and processed and I prayed and and it, you wouldn't, I, I would never let anyone else see this journal because it's filled with such darkness. But God met me in that, and, and through that journal, through me processing this loss, God met me in the middle of all that. So listening to, 
to your grief is about processing your losses. And, and it might be through conversation. It might be through, through prayer, through counseling, through, through journaling. But the first thing we do is we listen to this interruption rather than try to bury it or medicate, a, medicate it away. We actually face it head on and listen for God and listen to ourselves. And the second thing we do is we learn to fall. We talk about infants learning how to walk, but there's also a need for them to learn how to fall. And we continue to need to, to learn how to fall. My friend John, he, he was a beloved snow, snowboard instructor up at Mount Seymour. And uh, John and I became friends at the local Starbucks a, a couple of years ago, and, and we became buddies. And he'd tell me stories about about teaching snowboarding to, to people and, and how well, the first lesson when you're teaching snowboarding is what? You gotta learn how to fall. You don't wanna fall badly, you wanna fall right. That's what he would say. I wear his, uh, he actually passed away this last June from cancer and I, I wear his Mount Seymour jacket and I think about my friend John just about every day. I've been grieving his loss this year. But we see this modeled for, uh, by Jesus in the garden. He, Jesus learned how to fall. And grieving our losses or embracing our losses is a lot like learning to fall. And it goes against our, our whole Western culture, which is kind of bigger, better, more success. It's kind of up and to the right. And, and we have this idea that our, our spirituality is going to look the same. It's always going to be about bigger, better, stronger. I've got my act together. It's all this upwards, upwards journey, but then this, this whole grief and and loss comes, and, and Jesus shows us that there is also this downward journey we take that leads to a cross and leads to a burial, but also leads to a resurrection. We don't like falling, but there are all these gems and diamonds and treasure, treasures that we can discover uh, from God if we'll wait on him and, like Jesus, say, Lord, I don't want to go this way. I'm asking for any other way, but Lord, if it's your will, I want it. There are treasures that we can find that can be found in no other place and no other way than grief and loss. One of the treasures that we can find is our self-will can be broken. Your stubborn self-will is, is broken through grieving and loss in a way it can't be broken in any other way. Notice this verse in, in Hebrews 5.8, that although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. I don't like that verse. I hope you don't like that verse. That's a very hard verse. That although Jesus was son of God, he learned obedience from what he suffered. What's happening to Jesus there in the garden? He's submitting his will to, to God's will. And in that moment, he's so fully overwhelmed by the power of God and the will of God and the plan of God. And, and, and what makes, I don't know if you've ever been in that place, by the way, but what makes this text so meaningful was he said yes to God. And we might say, well, okay, that's, that's, that's Jesus. It was easy for him. No, it wasn't. It wasn't easy for him. He was fully human, and in his human will, he's actually struggling here to say yes to God. Jesus was not automatically obedient. He, he learned obedience. Guess what? We learn obedience the same way. Uh, obedience isn't an automatic deal for us as well. We have to learn it. If if Jesus had to learn obedience through his sufferings, we have to learn obedience through our sufferings. And here's Jesus. He wasn't pretending. He's praying the same prayer over and over and over again. Father, if it's possible. Father, if it's possible. He's honest. But he's able to go ahead and pray, not my will, but yours be done. I want what you want. I'm, I'm going to trust you. 
That's not a, an easy prayer to pray, and he has to, to pray it three times. And, and for us, as we wrestle with God over the things he puts before us, we may have to pray it three times. We may have to pray it 3,000 times. Like Jesus, we have to struggle God's will through, and we don't automatically obey. As Peter Scazzaro says, he says, a struggled, learned obedience, a, a prayed-through obedience is a true obedience. In other words, true obedience isn't always a snap. It's a struggle, and it comes through suffering, and, and, and grief is in there, as is this process of our will being broken for us. You know, another thing we learn from Jesus is, is that we need friends when we're in anguish. Don't we? I mean, you, know, you notice in this passage, Jesus has his, his three closest friends with him in the garden. Actually, they're not right there. It's not a tight-knit, close prayer meeting. They're what? Uh, Luke says they're, they're a stone's throw away, which is 20 to 30 meters away. So Jesus needs friends. If Jesus needs friends, we will need friends, will we not? We need people who will, who will pray with us, who will pray for us, who will be watchful with us and be patient. And you know what? We give the, the, the disciples a lot of grief because they fell asleep. I think they get credit still for being there. <laughs> Like, I think they were still present. They still were there. You know what we don't need when we're in the garden? We don't need people saying stupid things. We don't need people telling us what God is doing. When, when someone's suffering, you don't tell them what God is doing. Why? Because we don't know what God is doing. It's a mystery. If you haven't figured that out by now, you certainly will. You can't always go point A to B. This is what God's doing right now. What we need in those moments is, is fellowship. Not, maybe, maybe not even in your face. Maybe you need the 20 to 30 meters. Because grief is a, a very lonely experience. And as you move through your journey with Christ, as you go through your Gethsemanes, your soul's getting enlarged, but nobody can grieve for you. So remember, as... as we all learn to fall. Let's, let's together kind of agree not to say stupid things to one another, right? Let's, let's wait on God. God will help people in, in our time. You can say, Pastor Derwin, you tell your friends today, he said, just the, the, the key point today was don't be stupid. And finally, uh, there's something else that happens here as we're learning to fall. As our, our, our souls are being enlarged, deep grieving empties our souls of junk really does. There's stuff that's removed from our lives through grieving and loss that can't be removed any other way. Th things that we think that are, are so important, uh, what, what people think, our possessions, our, our attachments to, to people. There, there's now space in, in your life for God to fill. There's, there's that capacity for God in, in a way that, that, that wasn't there before. This is certainly my experience when I lost my dad uh, three or four years ago to cancer. What, what I found through that experience of going with him, journeying with him through that season of loss, and then when, the finality of death and, and, and facing his absence, I found it, in a way it opened me up to, to God's working in my life in whole new ways. I was open to God doing whole new things. I, what I found was I was a, attached to a number of things. I was holding very tightly to, to three or four things, and in that season... Um, I found God releasing those detachments, like remarkably. They just became 
less important in my life. And as we learn to fall, we actually get freer because we begin to see life more clearly. You see, as, as you grieve through, through your pain and your loss, you don't get rid of your pain. You absorb it. It becomes part of who you are. You, you carry it, and, and it enlarges you, and it transforms you. you. You don't ever, quote, get over it. It's part of you now, and, and you're now a, a gift to the world as, as God makes you a more tender and compassionate and loving person. I could go on, but I, I, I want to bring this to a close this morning. I don't know where you're at today, but I sense that God wants you to, to invite you to be with him in the garden. He wants to meet you there. Whatever the garden might be for you right now. He's the one who wants to meet us right where we're at, even, even through what feels to us like unbearable circumstances, unbearable interruptions. He wants to help us listen to our grief, pay attention to our sadness, so that we might be changed. He wants us to learn to fall, letting go of our, our stubborn self-will so that we can say, not my will, Father, but yours be done. This is the path to resurrection. There's a verse in John 12. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a, a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many things, many seeds. Some things, friends, have to die for us to, to get unstuck. And that's why this loss and, and grief for, for some of us in this room is the best thing that ever happened to you. It doesn't feel like that at the time. It feels horrible, yes. You're, you're on the ground and you're overwhelmed and, and, and you feel like you're not going to make it somehow. But God wants you to know, friends, this is for our resurrection. That's what he has in mind. But before resurrection comes, there needs to be a burial and there's a waiting and there's a, a, a transition. And so learning to to receive the interruptions, to, to learn to fall, even though everyone else seems to be going in the opposite direction. You say, no, I'm, I'm going to go with Jesus. I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm going down. If I die, it produces many seeds. There's, there's no better way than to allow grief and loss to, to enlarge your soul. And then a funny thing happens. You, you become a, a, the kind of person that people run to in their pain because they know you've been there You've been seasoned, and you've been matured, and you've been stripped. And you know what? God will use your pain to teach you if you let him. And so you can become a gift to, to others. But this, this transformation is coming. And I, I wish there was another way, but it only comes through the cross. And the miracle is that you, you go on, head on like Jesus. I, I love how the story ends. I, I don't love how it ends, but, but I love the fact that in that garden, Jesus gets strength. To, say, to get up at the, at the last and say, rise and go. Off he goes to face the music and also gain the resurrection. Like Jesus, I, I want to invite you to say yes to God this morning, even though you're not fully sure what that means. You, you may be saying, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't want to walk through this path that you have laid out for me, but Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And we want to learn to fall into the arms of our loving Father. Let's, let's bow our heads together and pray. Lord, you've sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and to be upon us and to move us, Lord, to enable us to live a life as it was meant to be lived. 
And that includes falling, Lord, into your arms of love and not running from it. God, we confess we're really afraid and we don't know how to do this very well. And uh, so, Lord, we ask, guide us and lead us now that you would, would enlarge all of our souls in this room through, through our losses and, and griefs that we may experience resurrection and be a gift to those around us. I pray that our grief and our losses might indeed become a grace disguised, a gift that will be for us and for the world. Help us, Lord, to follow you, to trust you, Jesus, and to drink the cup you have for each one of us in our lives, trusting that, God, that you are going to bring about a resurrection in each of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.